Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans, to chapter 4. We'll study verses 4 through 8. Romans chapter 4, we'll study verses 4 through 8. This is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the diverse church in the city of Rome. This is a church that is partially made up of Gentile or non-Jewish believers from international backgrounds. And this is also a church partially made up of converted Jews or Jewish Christians And so whenever Paul writes to them, the book of Romans, he is intending to draw them together in a common faith, to strengthen them in the Lord Jesus Christ, to help them to stand firm in a city that is very much in opposition to Jesus. And this is also a church that he writes to that has had not only a little bit of division. They have been debating, arguing, and even dividing over doctrine. And so one of the things I want to tell you this morning is that, like every book of the Bible, Romans also is believed for salvation. We as a church have studied through the whole of the book, chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through chapter 4. And here this morning we come to verses 4 through 8. In chapter 4, the apostle has spoken about the faith by which Abraham was counted righteous. And the reason he does this is to to juxtapose or to to put contrast between salvation that is by works and then salvation that is by faith. And Paul wants to show you from the scriptures that Abraham was counted righteous because of his faith. And so let us turn our attention again to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Romans chapter 4, verses 4 through 8. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. This is God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. May he give us help to understand it and to receive it faithfully. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you have spoken and by the Holy Spirit moved the hands of holy men to write your word. Lord, we have heard it. We pray that you would help us to understand it and help us to receive it and help us to rejoice in it that we may be happy in Christ Jesus. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. What is doctrine for? Is it so that we can think deeply? Is it so that we can think transcendentally to take our minds to where He is in the heavenly places beyond the common things 
of this world? Is it for debate? Is doctrine for battling it out amongst other believers? And I'll say simply, no. Doctrine is for our blessedness. That is to say, doctrine is for our happiness, our spiritual joy. The things we believe inform our hearts by faith, not just our minds, our hearts. And doctrine ought to stir us to have a joy and a happiness that is untouchable because it is hidden in the character of a loving God. And as the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Rome, a divided church, this morning he touches upon another Old Testament citation. And to whom does he look? It's not just Abraham, but this morning it's just David. I appreciate it so much that in the reading of the text he doesn't say Abraham, our father, according to his kingship or anything like that. It's just David, the household man whose words they sang whose hearts had been wrapped around his own spiritual language. And so David points us to this this morning. The blessedness of this wonderful doctrine of justification. The happiness of the doctrine of justification. If you're visiting with us this morning, you may or may not be very familiar with the language of justification. And so I give you a brief answer to the question, what is justification, that comes from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, a portion of our church document of faith. It answers, justification is an act of God's free grace. It's something God does. That's the first thing they want you to know about it. It's something God does, not that we do. And he freely does it by his grace, not because of who we are. Not only that, It is the time wherein he pardons our sins. He pardons our sins. Where he simply looks upon his creatures and says in his sight, accepts us as righteous. It's not only that you're not guilty, but that God in himself and in his grace for you says you are righteous. Because of the righteousness of Christ imputed or given to us and received by faith. I'll read it out with all, without all the commentary. Justification is an act of God's free grace where he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed or given to us and received by faith. Alone, And so this morning I want us to see two aspects or two parts of justification that are derived from the passage of Scripture. And these will be doctrinal terms, so please do forgive me, but I will explain them as we study them. But in verses 4 and 5, I want us to see the positive aspect of justification. The positive aspect of justification. And then in verses 6 through 8, I want us to see the negative aspect of justification. The negative aspect of justification. And so as we come to verses 4 and 5, Paul is commenting 
on Genesis 15, verse 6, that he has just quoted to his readers in the previous verse, verse 3. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so one of the things that I want to initially encourage you is that as we read this this morning, take Paul as an example. How then do I handle the Old Testament in light of the New Testament? There is a relationship between the two, necessarily. The Old Testament and its promises and its doctrine form for us much of what we see in the New Testament. And so as Paul is commenting or explaining it like a preacher would or like a commentator would, he is pointing directly counted righteous because of works that he had done. Not because he was a holy man did he become acceptable before God, but rather by faith. And so he gives us this illustration, uh, this contrast that he wants to draw in verses 4 and 5. And it's this picture of a worker who has a boss, and his job is the way in which he makes a living. Now the one, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his due. Now to the one who works, his wages, or his pay, are not counted as a gift, but as his due. That makes perfect sense, doesn't it? How many of you have a job? Of course, many, most of you, have a job. And it's the way that you pay the bills. It's the way that you eat. It's the way that you conduct your regular life. You keep a house over your head, so on and so forth. But with that job, you have a specific hour, don't you? You're told to be there Monday morning, 7 a.m. And you're to leave on Monday afternoon at 4.30 p.m., right? You have a time. You have a schedule. Tuesday, you go and you do it again. Wednesday, the same. Thursday, the same. And Friday, if you're very fortunate according to the providence of God... You're off work at maybe 2.30, a little early, to have a break. But you've worked hours, and you've taken a card, maybe, and you've registered yourself as in attendance. And you've worked, you've done the task that is assigned to you, whatever that is. And in our church, there is a huge variety of tasks and careers and jobs with which people receive their well-being. If your boss doesn't pay you for the things that you've done... It's unjust, right? It's not a gift. You've worked for it. You've earned that money. You've done for him what was necessary for her, what was assigned to you. You've made them a business. They have made money. Then, therefore, they owe you. It is a thing owed, not a gift. And that's Paul's whole point. He's saying simply this. If a person worked for their salvation, if it was according to their holiness, for their punching the card of the things required to live a righteous life, then the person would stand before God and to simply say, things that I've done. But here's Paul's point. The Bible does not say that's how Abraham was counted righteous, does it? No. It says in Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God. Abraham believed God And it was counted to him as righteousness. Faith. Faith is how Abraham was counted righteous. 
And there is this language of the accountant here. It was accounted to him like money transferred from one account to another. Everybody in the room should be profoundly aware of the transfer of money. It seems to be such a regular part of life here. God accounted to him righteousness because he believed, not because he worked. And so that's where in verse 5, Paul continues. And he makes the point and tries to make it so incredibly clear. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And Paul is saying to his readers, that's Abraham. He believed God and was reconciled to him by faith. Not because he was a holy man, but because God is full of grace to the sinner. God gives righteousness freely and grace freely to any who would put their hope and their trust in him and in him alone. He insists upon it. He insists upon it. That justification is by grace through faith. And he's saying to his readers, to the Jewish Christians in the ancient Roman church, that's your father Abraham. That's how he could stand before the Lord his God. Not because he was righteous, not because he kept the law, not because he was faithful, because the testimony of the scriptures is that he wasn't. He was a struggling and a stumbling man, falling over himself. He made lots of mistakes. Just like all of us, his children. But how was he reconciled to God? By believing in him and his promise. It's as simple as that. Nothing more was necessary and nothing less was sufficient. Simply by faith. And this, friends, is good news. It is the positive aspect of justification. Because it is what God gives to you. It is what He gives to you. What He does for you. As He declares that you are not only not guilty, but that you are Righteous in Jesus Christ. That's the positive aspect of it. You are accounted righteous in sight. Not to stand afraid. Not to stand overwhelmed in guilt. But to stand clothed in the blood and the righteousness of Jesus To be a son, to be a daughter, to be loved. Where the father would look from his throne and in justice look upon you and say, I love you and you're beautiful and you're holy and you're good and you have a place with me. The positive aspect of justification. And it's by faith. The second thing I want us to see from the passage is the negative aspect of justification. And here in verses uh, 6 through 8, there is a transition. We've already looked at Abraham, the father of all of Israel, the father of the household of faith. And here in verse 6, without introduction, 
we transition to David. Just as, or in the same vein of thought as verse 5, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And so we enter the section on the negative aspect of justification. But again, I just love it. It's, it's, it's wonderful. There's, I want to try to put myself in the shoes or in, or in the living room of the original reader, right? And sometimes whenever you have this long introduction like our father Abraham, forefather according to the flesh, there's a reason you ask, like, why is he doing that? And same thing here with David. And again, I just want to say to you, I think the reason why this is, is that David, they all know so well. They know his psalms, his songs that he wrote. And it's on their hearts. Do you have any songs you love to sing? I do. Do you have a song that no matter where you are in the world, if you were to hear it, it takes you back to a place, to a moment, to a security? I do. When we have our hymn sing in just a little while, I think that, I trust, that some of the requests will remind you of sitting on your your mother or your father's lap. It'll remind you of, of a time or a place or a security. And I think there's something of that for the people that he's writing to, to these Jewish Christians. And so he can just simply say, just as David also speaks. And there's an immediate thing whenever they say this. It's almost like saying your favorite writer or your favorite songwriter. Straight to the heart. Just as David also speaks of what? Of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. There's a deeper point of all this. Yes, it's doctrinal. But what's the point? Well, it's the point to which David puts his finger as he so often does. It's on the heart. The word here, blessing, is then repeated in the psalm that's quoted. Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. And it's the same word that's at the very beginning of the book of Psalms. Psalm 1. Oh, greatly blessed is the man who walketh not away and accounts love ungodly men, or stands in sinners' way. You know that psalm? It's that same word. Blessedness. It's the same word that you have in the New Testament that we spoke of this morning about beatitude. Blessed. But what does it mean? Well, it has to do with happiness. With happiness. With the heart's joyful satisfaction. That you're filled up, as it were. And so the doctrine that he's about to express in the... That's David's point. This should be deeply felt. This should be soul-affecting, confronting, and comforting. And so let's read what David says about the one whom God counts righteousness apart from works. In verse 7, the psalmist writes, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Verse 8, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Let me translate that first word. Most happy 
Joyful are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Joyful are those whose sins are covered. Happy, blessed, joyful is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. It's about the heart. About the Christian smiling from within and rejoicing with a heart of sincerity to the Lord. And here it is. You're not saved by works. You're saved by grace through faith. Because of these three things that justification does not demand from us. The first, verse 7. Whose lawless deeds are forgiven. When you break a law, what's demanded? I can tell you, this week I received one in the mail. You break the law, you get a speeding ticket, and there is demanded a penalty. There's a penalty. It's hard sometimes. Some penalties, especially depending on the law, are much worse, much worse than something like a mere speeding ticket and the unrighteousness and shame that attends a speeding ticket. Sins against God demand justice. They demand a penalty. They demand what? Punishment. And what's people with hearts that commit lawless deeds, with mouths that speak lawless words and hands that are involved in lawlessness, that there, there is forgiveness for that person. Forgiveness. Where the Lord turns away from His wrath and to them as a friend, forgiven. This wonderful aspect of justice and God's justifying grace, not demanding that you receive the punishment, saying to you, you don't have to endure it, but that you can live and walk and be with Him, forgiven of the things that you've done. Now that doesn't at all sound like that false picture of Abraham, the man who never did a foul thing that false teachers taught, who was justified by his works. No, this is a person who themselves have sinned, maybe are sinning, and will sin, who can know that there is forgiveness even for a sinner and happiness and blessedness with a God who is gracious to those who would believe on Him. The second negative aspect of justification here in this verse is in the second part of verse 7. And whose sins are covered. You know, there's one thing to just simply say you're forgiven of a thing, right? I think I can draw an illustration of this. It's one thing to say you're forgiven and then to see a repair, right? Anybody ever broken like a coffee mug? I have broken a lot of them. And my wife tells me that I'm the reason why my children have broken many more because I leave them everywhere in the house. And I have favorite coffee mugs. I love coffee mugs that have like reformers on it or book quotes or geeky pastor stuff. I love that kind of thing. 
And so they're broken, and I think, well, I, maybe I'll fix it. And, and so I go, and, and I buy some glue at the store, good glue, super glue, something. And then I find, you know, all the, all the inspiration. I take those desperate pieces of broken, probably lost a piece, right? And I glued every piece carefully, and maybe I get it together. But does the thing look repaired? No. The few times I've been brave enough to try to put coffee in it, does it hold coffee? No. It's a broken cistern. It's no good for coffee. It'll be on your pants if you try to use the thing. It is one thing to to say you're forgiven or it's okay that you broke it. It's an entirely different thing to cover it or to fix the situation, to deal with it. And that's what is being spoken of here. The sins being covered, sin being dealt with. Not only that you don't have to be punished for the sin, but that the sin is taken from you and dealt with. What is this picturing? It's the atonement. It's the punishment that you deserve being dealt with. That the thing that you have done, that the law's punishment that you deserve is being covered by another. To put it into some terms like this, I can say it's not only that we say you're forgiven, but we can also say that in Christ, your sin will never come back to haunt you before the Lord of glory. It's done. It's finished. It's covered. His blood was spilled. His body broken. He died our death and put our death to death in His. Justification does not demand that you deal with your sin. It says, by faith, Jesus dealt with it. And then this third and wonderful negative aspect here listed in verse 8. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And so we return to the language of the accountant. This is not just the language of the courtroom, of being declared righteous. But the language of the accountant, we would say doctrinally, this is the language of imputation, right? Where somebody is given a thing. Where I make a transfer to you, where you make a transfer to me, as it were. And the man against whom God will not count his sin, as it were, against him. But there is a removal. That's the picture. The depiction. Now, when we speak about the cross of Jesus, we understand a few things. We understand that we may be declared righteous because His righteousness is given to us. His obedience to the Father and to the Word of God is given to us. Like a check, like a bunch of money deposited into our account. But there's this other aspect that in that, He hangs on the cross. He is cursed because all of our guiltiness is then transferred from us to him. It's put into his account on his cross. And that's why the person can be blessed and the Lord will never count our sins against us because he counted our sins against his son. They've been deposited into his account. He paid the penalty. He settled the bill 
and the demands of the law and of God's righteousness have been met in full. And David says, and I'm blessed because of it. I'm joyful. My heart swells because of these truths. Because it's not the thing that I would do or even the things that I failed to do in the keeping of the law and of good works and of righteousness before God. It is because I can have faith in the one who came and died for me. Justification is by faith a free gift to any, not only that you might not no longer be an enemy of God, but that you would be his beloved child. Would you receive Christ? Would you know him if you've never known him? And Christian, would this old truth of your life with him, would this bring to your heart new joy, a fresh hope and happiness? A security that maybe you forgot for a moment so that your heart could be like the heart of David offered to the Lord in praise. And this doctrine is for your blessedness. It's for your blessedness. Let's pray together. Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you that we have security in the Lord Jesus Christ. That we have one who made atonement for our sins. And one who has brought us into the household of God. Clean. And righteous. And who looks to his left and to his right. And he calls us brother and sister. Oh Lord. And who invites us to sit with him. At your table. Father in heaven we pray that you would bless us as a church. Lord bless our visitors. Help us to regard you as you are the holy God who is full of grace and compassion. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.